Have you ever thought of uh, running in Kentucky? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> you, have, you are among friends. Well, there's a lot of wonderful, great, and good people here. I'm delighted to be here. But I must tell you, I'm very delighted to be with you. You're the best. Thank you. You're the best. I have to say for the record that um, my mother has given my father uh, an early birthday present this year, which is that she surprised him by flying him out here uh, from California. Uh, I will not point my dad out to you because then he will talk to each one of you before you leave. Um, but he is here because uh, you are a lifelong hero of his, and you have always been in my family uh, an icon of American greatness. So it is a great honor. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I'm honored to be here again. Um, you were there when President Johnson um, signed the Voting Rights Act, just months after you were beaten on the Pettus Bridge. That was at a time when the National Guard had to be activated to enforce the law in parts of this country. You've been, you were sworn into Congress in 1987, just after the Iran-Contra crisis, which is a real crisis. You were there for Bosnia and impeachment and 9-11 and torture and Iraq and Iraq again and... Congress has been through a lot. We have faced a lot of challenges as a country in your lifetime and in your time in Washington. Why does it feel right now like we are less able to handle even the small stuff when we have dealt with so much big stuff? Gracia, I must tell you, uh, this is my 27 year in the Congress. I have never, ever seen anything like this. It is so sad, it is embarrassing, that the government of the most powerful nation on the planet cannot get its act together. Um, I don't know what the rest of the world is saying about us. We go around the world preaching democratic ideas, democracy. People are probably saying, if, if it's like that, maybe we shouldn't move in that direction. Um, but we will overcome. I should say that this show, uh, this conversation will be replayed uh, in the future. And we are talking right now in the middle of October when we are on the eve of what could be um, not just a national but an international global conflagration because of um, the debt ceiling discussions which uh, you're lamenting here. You came up as an, as an activist, as a confronter, as an organizer. This book, March, which you have just written, which has been so successful, is about, in part, your creativity and coming to adulthood, trying to figure out ways to creatively and effectively approach big, horrible problems. Given the fact that that's who you are and that's where you've been, is it satisfying to work in Congress? Well, I, uh, it's gratifying to, to represent the people of Georgia and, and the people of America. I was taught to work hard and not to give up. You know, I grew up on a farm in rural Alabama. Working out in the field, I would say to my mother, this is hard work. And she would say, boy, hard work never killed anybody. I said, well, it's about to kill me. <laughs> but, but then I, I heard of Rosa Parks. And I met Rosa Parks in 1957 at the age of 17. The next year, in 1958, I met Martin Luther King Jr. And I got involved, and I never looked back. 
I didn't like segregation and racial discrimination. I didn't like those signs. And I was inspired to do something about it. During the sit-ins, we came together. We worked, we studied. Before we would go on any sit-in, any protest, the Freedom Ride, or standing at the theaters, we studied the way of peace, the way of love, the way of nonviolence. We studied what Gandhi attempted to do in South Africa, what he accomplished in India. We studied the role in civil disobedience. We studied the great religions of the world. And by the time we started sitting in, I was ready. You'd be sitting there and someone would come up and spit on you, or put a lighted cigarette out in your hair or down your bag, pour hot water, hot coffee, or hot chocolate on you, call your names, but we would look straight ahead, or be working on a paper, or reading a book. But I was determined to find a way to get in the way. Come my mother and father, my grandparents and great-grandparents, I would ask them questions, and they would say, don't get in trouble. That's the way it is, don't get in trouble. But I was inspired to get in trouble, and today I call it good trouble, necessary trouble. One of the things I did not know before the book came out was that the, con the context in which you met Dr. King was that you wrote to him as a student in seminary in Nashville, saying that you were from Troy, Alabama, and the college in your hometown in Troy, you were thinking maybe should be the target of a desegregation campaign, and maybe that should be you. You met with Dr. K you wrote to Dr. King, you eventually met with Dr. King, and he, he said, you better talk to your family about this, because this is going to have consequences for them, too. Your family told you they did not want to do it. When you were an 18-year-old man, obviously inspired in a lifelong way by that meeting with Dr. King, inspired enough to write to him with that idea in the first place, this is three years out from the Montgomery bus boycott. How did you feel about your family saying no? Well, I didn't like the idea, didn't like them saying no. Uh, they kept saying you're gonna get hurt. If you go and, and get involved with Martin Luther King Jr. and try to enter Troy State College, we could lose the land. Our home was, might be bombed or burned. But I met with Dr. King, and I went back and had a discussion with my family, and they uh, refused to file a suit, or be a party to filing a suit against the state of Alabama or Troy State. So I continued to study in Nashville. And in a sense, it worked out okay, because it was in Nashville that I came under the influence of a man by the name of Jim Lawson, uh, who taught us the way of nonviolent action. We had role playing, we had social drama. And this man became my teacher. He abused me and so many other young people in Nashville. There were students at Vanderbilt College, Vanderbilt University, Peabody College, Tennessee State, Fisk University, American Baptist. And we all got involved and we became the individuals that took the beatings to jail, we made up the Freedom Rides, and we went into the most difficult places in the South, in Alabama, in Georgia, in Mississippi, to attempt to get people registered to vote. But somebody had to do it. 
When we went on the Freedom Ride, we thought it was a possibility that we wouldn't return. We wrote out our wills. We were prepared to die for what we believed in. You have written and spoken your entire life with incredible eloquence about nonviolence. Um, and learning about how Jim Lawson and the teachings of nonviolence came to you at a time when you were studying theological seminary, you were having those meetings in church, the do's and don'ts that you wrote for your fellow activists in the Nashville sit-ins ended with God bless all of you. Obviously, faith was an important part of what was driving your decisions in life. But what was the relationship for you between this thirst for justice that you had and your belief in God and your work through religion? I mean, I'm, grown, I've, I'm from a very Catholic family and I have not abandoned the church, but for me, my own feelings about social justice are often at odds with my church. For you, especially growing up as a gay person, but for you, it seems like Christ, faith in Christ, and faith in your church community dovetailed more with your sense of justice. Well, I had some questions. I questioned when I saw those signs, when I saw segregation and racial discrimination, when I felt the stain of racism, I wanted to say, where is God? And I came to the conclusion that we had to help God. We had to be his helpers. We had to intervene. And I started preaching or trying to preach the, the social gospel that it was left up to us to help liberate people here on earth, here on this planet. But as you said, do's and don'ts, at the end we did say, remember the teaching of Jesus, Gandhi, Thoreau, Martin Luther King Jr., may God bless you. Somehow it was this belief that it's whatever is to come, it's already done. We had to actualize it. We had to make it real. You had to take the long, hard look and believe that justice is going to prevail, but you have to help justice prevail. That fairness is all going to work out. It's all going to be all right. You get out there. After you say your prayers, you get up and move your feet. <laughs> you get up and make some noise. The act of nonviolent resistance uh, in the face of abuse and violence uh, is unnatural. Um, I can't speak for all humanity. I know just from my own lived experience as a human, it, it is, you have to suppress a very powerful instinct to not hit back or at least resist when somebody is hitting you. How, did you, how, do, how do you defeat that instinct? How did you train yourself when you saw those troopers coming at you on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965, how did you train yourself that the thing to do was to get on your knees and pray and not resist? How do you train yourself to not hit back? Well, when the state trooper commander said, I Major John Cloud of the Alabama State Troopers, this march will not be allowed to continue. You must return to your homes or to your church. Jose William, who was walking with me, said, Major, give us a moment to kneel and pray. And before we can pass word back 
to the 600 individuals to kneel and pray. The major said, troopers advance. And those guys start putting on their gas masks. They came toward us, beating us with nightsticks, bull whips, tramping us with horses, releasing the tear gas. I was hit in the head by a state trooper with a nightstick. I thought I was going to die. I thought I saw death. And I said to myself, this may be it. This may be my last protest. But I was wondering what is going to happen to all the other people. But somehow I had faith that some way and somehow we would succeed. When you accept nonviolence as a way of life, as a way of living, you have to come to that point and say, whatever comes, whatever happens, I'm not going to hate because hate is too heavy a burden to bear. And you have to be able to respect the dignity and the worth of every human being. Jim Lawson would tell us from time to time, see your opponent, see your opposition as a little child, as a little baby. When you come into this world, we're little children, we're little babies, and we're so innocent. And someone tend to teach people to put someone down because of their race, their color, their nationality, or because of sexual orientation, because they may be an immigrant. And you have to respect every human being. In my religious tradition, I would say that in every person, every human being, there is a spark of the divine. And you cannot abuse it. You cannot abuse that spark. One of the things that I know, and you documented, one of the things that you taught one another in training to endure a beating and not hit back, to not curse, to not resist, uh, was to try to make eye contact with the person who yes. was abusing you. Yes. Could you actually do that in the oh, moment, oh, and oh, why do it? Oh, oh, that was so important. That was so important to just look that person, just look, get that person to look at you and see you as a fellow human being. And just maybe, just maybe, you will win that person over. Over the years, I've had so many individuals with Nashville, in Birmingham, in Montgomery, come up and say, John, I'm sorry. Mr. Lewis, I'm sorry. Congressman, I'm sorry. I want to apologize for what we did. Sometimes it takes people a little, little time to, to get it, but they get it. You were um, not just a person who participated in the movement. You were leader, uh, and in a very direct sense, an organizer. You got other people to also do the things that you were courageous enough to do yourself. And starting with the Nashville sit-ins, onto the Freedom Rides, and over that bridge, and Selma, and everything in between, you were able to convince people that it was their fight too, and that they should do what you were brave enough to do. How'd you do it? How were you a good organizer? Well, if you're a good organizer, if you're a leader, you must be able to organize yourself and others. You, you, you must convince people that this is worth the pain, the suffering, the struggle, and get people to understand that the struggle is not a struggle that lasts for one day, a few weeks, a few months, a few years. 
It may be a struggle of a lifetime, but struggle, you must. My members of the press would come up when I was much younger and say, are you one of the leaders? I would say, no, I'm just a participant. I'm just one of the participants. But if you're going to be a spokesperson, a leader of a group, you have to be prepared to lead. You, can't, you cannot tell people to go someplace that you have not been. I thought about how you as a young man, you were 18 when you met Dr. King, you were 20, I think, when you first got arrested in Nashville. Yes. Um, and thinking back at the, the other participants in those sit-ins, it wasn't just young men, it was also young women. And thinking back at what happened on then Ben Predis Bridge, there was a lot of very young people there. Uh, you were in your 20s by then, but there were, a lot of, there were teenagers in that march, 600 strong, a lot of, lot of women in that march. Wasn't and and children, men. a lot of women. And I don't think the women that participated in the movement have never received their due. Because there was a lot of male chauvinism in the movement. Without the women, that probably wouldn't have been a Montgomery bus boycott in 1955. Not just Rosa Parks, but one of the women that played such a role in having to organize the Montgomery bus boycott was a teacher at a college, Alabama State College. And she stayed up almost all night typing on the old portable typewriter and then using the old mimograph machine and having the paper cut up and getting her students to go through the African-American community that passed out the leaflet telling people not to ride the buses. It was a young people in Nashville, the young lady who headed the Nashville student movement was Diane Nash, a student at Fisk University. Women played a major role. And young people, people in elementary, middle school, and high school participated. Even you had young people in Selma saying, I'm not old enough to, to register to vote, but let my teacher register to vote. Let my mother and my father, my grandmother and grandfather register to vote. Your own parents did not register to vote until the 1970s? They were not able to register to vote until after the Voting Rights Act was passed. Wow. My mother, who had opposed my involvement in the movement, when she were able, when the Voting Rights Act was passed and signed into law on August 6, 1965, by Lyndon Johnson, she was so happy. My father, so happy. My grandfather, they were able to register to vote for the first time. Just think about those, those gender dynamics and those intergenerational dynamics. Even the dynamic between these young, brave activists like yourself and the immediate predecessors, like the Thurgood Marshalls and the people who had fought for the desegregation orders that were then not being lived and that you were fighting for the country to live. And I, it, is, it is hard to talk to you about those things without remembering the personal violence that you suffered and having your skull fractured. And knowing that you suffered violence over and over again, that more than once you thought you were going to die because of the violence you were suffering in that moment. Did it make it harder to keep doing it knowing that there were going to be little kids at every protest that you organized, that at that march you weren't just volunteering for it yourself, it was coming down on all of you, including these women, 
the little kids with you. Did that, how, does, how did that work in your mind? I was deeply concerned about young people, young children. I was deeply concerned about the women, even on the march from Selma to Montgomery. For the most part, we put the men up front. We had the young people, uh, maybe middle. We thought we were going to be arrested, that we were going to be taken to jail, but we thought there was a possibility of violence. Um, I remember one young man who was a high school student in Nashville, Tennessee. He wanted to be a part of the movement. He wanted to protest. He wanted to come downtown and sit in on a lunch kind of stool. And he told me over and over again, his mother said, you can go if you go with John Lewis. And this young guy became a participant, finished high school, college, became a great journalist. Um, he's retired now, but I see him. And he thanked me um, because he said his participation freed and liberated him. Mm. You were arrested uh, recently. I believe it was your 45th arrest. Um, you got arrested in, in a protest for immigration reform. Why did, you, why did you protest for that, and why did you decide to get arrested? Well, I felt it was the right thing to do uh, to dramatize the issue. It, it, people would ask me in Nashville back in 1960, uh, 1961 during the Freedom Ride, uh, my involvement in Mississippi and other parts in 1964, the march. Why? Why should we? Do? I said we need to find a way to dramatize the issue. I would like to see the Congress bring up the bill to pass comprehensive immigration reform. I got a telephone call from someone after I got arrested and were released. Said, why are you protesting for comprehensive immigration reform? Those folks are going to be all right. And, I, and they were talking to my staff and just really arguing with my staff. And they said, a congressperson is here. He would like to speak to you. I said, where are you from? I said, you're from Georgia? I said, no. And this lady just went on and on. I said, let me say this to you, ma'am. I appreciate your call. But look. When I got arrested the first time, sitting in at a lunch counter, I was sitting in just for African American. When I was beaten on that bridge, when I was beaten at that Greyhound bus station in Montgomery, I was being beaten for all people. And I went on to say we're one people, we're one family, and we got to look out for each other, each one. So, so when one of us, when one of us, any one of us is hurting, we all are hurting. When one of us is suffering, we all are suffering. What were your parents' lives like? My mother and father, back in 1944, when I was four years old, and I remember when I was four, they had saved, uh, they had been sharecroppers, tenant farmers, the owner had rented a shotgun house where I was born. My older brother, older sister was born in that house. But they moved to their own land 
They worked hard, very, very hard. And I used to complain, I used to complain. I used to not argue with them, but I was there, oh, this is just like gambling. You, you work so hard and you plant a crop, and then at the end of the year, you go deeper and deeper in debt. And my mother was there, my middle name is Robert. She said, was there Robert? That's all we know to do, all we know to do. She just said, what else are we going to do? But they were so proud when I went away to college. I was the first member of my family to go off to college um, and to get a college degree. But they worried about me. Did they think you were going to become a minister? Did you think you were going to become yeah, a minister? Yeah, they thought I was going to become a minister because people in the community called me boy preacher. I was <laughs> preaching all the time. But, you know, I must tell you, uh, much earlier, uh, when I was only seven, eight, or nine years old on the farm, it was my responsibility to care for the chickens, to raise the chickens. And we describe in this book, uh, as a little boy, uh, I would uh, gather all of our chickens together in the chicken yard. And my cousins and brothers and sisters were lying the outside of the chicken yard, but they helped make up the congregation. These are lucky chickens. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I would start speaking or preaching, and when I look back on it, some of these chickens were by their heads. <laughs> some of the, really, this is true. Some of these chickens would shake their heads. Mm -hmm. They never quite said amen. <laughs> But I'm convinced that some of those chickens that I preached to during the 40s and the 50s tend to listen to me much better than some of my colleagues listen to me today. <laughs> I know this is a little bit weird, but why do you think you like the chickens so much more than the other animals? Well, uh, I mean, I, you weren't talking to the cows. No, I didn't talk to the cows. No. Uh, I, I saw the chickens as innocent creatures. I, I be, really, I became very good at raising chickens. I, I, I would take the fresh eggs, mark them with a pencil, place them under the setting hen, and wait for three long weeks for the little chicks to hatch. And after the little chicks were hatched, I would take these little chicks and put them in a box with a lantern, raise them on their own, get some more fresh eggs, mark them with a pencil, and place them under the setting hen. Then encourage the setting hen to stay on the nest for another three weeks, or either just get the little chicks to another hen. I kept on cheating on these setting hens and fooling these setting hens because I never could save $18.98 to order the most inexpensive incubator hatcher from the Southern Roebuck store. Uh, you're probably too young to know about the Southern Roebuck catalog. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that big book, that thick book, that heavy like book. like this, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Some people call it a wish book. Wish I had this, I wish I had that. <laughs> and so that was my life. That was a part of my life. I would talk to these chickens at night, so you be quiet, and you listen, and don't you fight. So those chickens taught me something about nonviolence before I met Jim <laughs> Lawson. And, and, they, and they also taught me patience, yeah. to be patient, take the long, hard look, wait three weeks. Did you ever go through a phase as a child or as a young man in which you were violent, in which you were, you know, break things for breaking things sake? A lot, of, a lot of kids go through that. I went through that phase, destructive kind of phase. No, I, I never went through that phase. I, I was just a kid just trying to do my best. I didn't, uh, I, we had very few books at home, very few books. My folks were so poor. We didn't have a subscription to the local newspaper. 
but my grandfather had one. And when he would finish reading his newspaper, each day we would get his newspaper and read that paper. We listened to an old radio to get the news. You took a trip north as a very young man uh, with an uncle to uh, Buffalo, New York, and saw people living in an unsegregated way. What, how did that affect you? What do you remember of that? Oh, I remember that trip so well. I was 11 years old in 1951, leaving rural Alabama in a car. But two or three nights before, my mother and her sister, my aunt, stayed up baking pies and cakes and frying chicken and wrapping in cellophane paper, putting food in a brown paper bag or in a shoebox so we would have something to eat as we passed through Alabama, through Tennessee, through Kentucky, on our way to Ohio and on to Buffalo, New York. Arriving in, in, in Buffalo, my relatives lived right next door to a white family. It was the first time I saw black people and white people sitting down together, eating together, on the same floor at a theater. Mm -hmm. Growing up in, in rural Alabama, outside of Troy, 50 miles from Montgomery, black people and white people couldn't be seated together at a theater. Couldn't ride together in a taxi cab. And to see that, that's why I was on the elevator for the first time, the escalator for the first time. It changed my life. I, I remember going back to Troy with some of my cousins and brothers and sisters. And this is not environmental, correct? But we, what we tried to do, we tried to slow down a large pine tree and we were going to make a bus and the wheels out of the Lord's side. Okay. The, and we were going to roll out of Alabama. What <laughs> <laughs> a Pinewood Derby. <laughs> you brought um, House Majority Leader Eric Cantor to the Edmund Pettus Bridge this past year to commemorate uh, the Selma to Montgomery March and the attack on the marchers, and indeed the Voting Rights Act that was earned uh, by your blood and by the blood of others on that bridge. Um, I don't mean this in a cynical way, but uh, Congressman Cantor got a lot of great press from doing that with you. Um, as Majority Leader, though, back in Washington, he has not helped bring vote the Voting Rights Act back um, let through legislation after the Supreme Court gutted it this summer. Do, do people try, is, is, it, is it an occupational hazard of being John Lewis that people try to be seen with you, to associate with you, to cast a little undeserved glory of the civil rights movement and your achievements on themselves? Well, on one hand, I would say maybe it's a blessing, and on the other hand, it may be a curse. Um, the majority leader said to me a few days ago, we need to sit down and, and talk about the voting rights act. So just a few days ago, so I'm, I'm not giving up on, on him. But I tell you what happens sometimes. People walk up to me, and they're black, they're white, uh, they're Latinos, Asian American, Native American, men, women, 
And they started crying. And I said, please don't cry. And people said, I'm gonna pass out a little faint. I said, please, I'm not a doctor, please don't cry. <laughs> please. But it's, uh, I, I have people said to me, could I touch you to see if you're human? I said, very much so, very much so. Um, How do you handle that? I just said thank you. But does it, does it, do you feel like you need to insulate yourself from that kind of hero worship because it will make you not recognize yourself? No, sometimes I, I have a feeling maybe I should just uh, go in and just disappear for a few days, a few weeks. Sometimes when I go to the grocery store to shop um, with my son, uh, he said, Daddy, put on a hat. He said, I'm not going with you, but a cap, I put on a cap or something, people still recognize. He said, I'm not going to go with you. Take you too long, too time. He said, you have to hug everybody, you have to kiss everybody. I said, it's part of my job and part of my responsibility. You want to borrow my glasses next time you go? <laughs> It is reported, and I cannot confirm this, but you can. It is reported that the original text of your speech that you wrote for the keynote address at the 1963 March on Washington included these lines. We will march through the South the way Sherman did. We shall pursue our own scorched earth policy. We shall fragment the South into a thousand pieces and put them together again in the image of democracy. It is reported uh, that those were among the words that you wrote for that speech that were eventually struck from the speech before you delivered it um, because of entreaties from your own side, people who you trusted coming to you and saying, you can't be that militant in this, in this setting. Is, is that true? How did, how did that well, happen? Well, I got the image of being militant, of being radical, and I didn't see myself as being militant or, or radical. I think the lines are play on words. Um, I said earlier in the speech, it's near the end of the speech, I said, you tell us to wait. You tell us to be patient. We don't want our freedom gradually. We want it and we want it now. And then I, I talked about brotherhood. Uh, I should include sisterhood in, 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 in the line. But the, the line near the end, it says something like, if we do not see meaningful progress here today, the day will come when we will march through the South of Ray Sherman there nonviolently. And there were people, including the Archbishop of the Diocese of Washington, say he would not yield the invocation if that line was left in his speech. And some others had a few words. So A. Philip Randolph, the Dean of Black Leadership, and Martin Luther King Jr., my hero, my inspiration, came to me and said, John, uh, could you change that? So we come this far together, let's stay together. And Dr. King said, John, that didn't sound like you. So I can say no to A. Philip Randolph, man that I love and admire. He, he was such a respected leader of the movement. And I couldn't say no to Dr. King, and I agreed to delete them. Do you agree now that they gave you good advice? Oh, it was good and sound advice. Yeah. It, it all worked out. It all, it all worked out. Do you identify with that same analysis that was in the original speech before you took it out? Do you still agree with that sentiment now that patience is overrated? That if we cannot get what we are due now, 
that we will take it now. I, I think I, I couldn't say it to this audience, and I couldn't say it, uh, uh, but I remember someone saying, John, uh, you can't say patient is a dirty and nasty word. They said, no, he said, you know, a certain a segment of the religious community believe in being patient. And uh, I said, well, we cannot be patient. Yeah. We cannot wait. Uh, you have to be involved. You have to be in the midst to bring about change. You have to push and you have to pull. The people hurting and suffering. You know, I like, I like the new pope. I love the new pope. Mm -hmm. well, When the Edmund Pettus Bridge incident happened, when that march from Selma to Montgomery, uh, you had been the head of, of SNCC, of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and SNCC had been operating in Selma already for years by the time of that march, trying to register voters for two years. And as I understand it, of, at, at the time of the march, of 15,000 black residents in Selma at that time, the number registered to vote was 383. This year, within 24 hours of the uh, Voting Rights Act getting gutted by the Supreme Court, uh, the state government of Alabama, the Republican governor and the Republican attorney general and secretary of state announced that now that the Voting Rights Act had been struck down, Section 5, uh, they would move forward with strict voter ID in Alabama. Is it the same fight? It is the same fight over, and it's not just the state of Alabama. It's not just the American South, but in so many other places, whether it's Arizona or whether it's Pennsylvania. I happen to believe that we must continue to open up the political process and let everybody come in. The vote is precious, almost sacred, and to be able to register to vote or to cast a vote should be as easy as getting a glass of water. Why have we experienced so much backsliding on the access to the right to vote? I, I, think, I think there's a deliberate, systematic effort on a part of a certain segment of uh, elected officials, and people want to take us back to another period. They feel the future rather than embracing it. That's what the whole immigration fight is all about. Um, and we cannot go back. We got to go forward and open up the process and let people come in, let everybody participate. I, I, I don't want to go back to a period where people stood in those unmovable lines in Selma. I don't want to go back to the literacy test. We have a, a member of Congress from a certain state in the West saying that we should uh, bring back the literacy test. I, I don't want to go back to a period, and maybe won't go that far in, in this age of the new technology, but people had to count the number of bubbles in a bar of soap or the number of jelly beans in a jar. There were one county back in 1965 and 1966 between Selma and Montgomery, the county was more than 80% African-American. There was not a single registered African-American voter in the county. 
a state like the state of Mississippi back in 63, 64, and 65 had a black voting age population of more than 450,000 and only about 16,000 were registered to vote. People lived in fear. People are afraid to, to be afraid. And none of the, not to just jump on with you here, but none of the specific policy means by which African Americans were excluded from registering to vote were racially specific. They were all things like, oh, literacy tests, that's not about race. Counting bubbles in a bar of soap, that's not about race. A 10% section of the Constitution yeah. of Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi. Or a poll tax, that's oh, not about race. Tax. Voter ID, that's not about race. But it, it, it make it hard for people of color, for students, for our seniors to participate in the process. And it's not right. When the Supreme Court did strike down Section 5, um, Senator Mitch McConnell um, of Kentucky was... <laughs> like I said, have you ever thought about running in Kentucky? Um, Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, where we are, where we are right now, um, was asked for his reaction that day, and he said, obviously it is an important... Talking about the Voting Rights Act. Obviously it is an important bill that passed back in the 60s at a time when we had a very different America. America is very different than what it was in the 1960s. Um, that essentially was, those were the brief remarks of Senator McConnell in response. That was essentially the argument of Chief Justice Roberts uh, with more statistics attached. Um, and I, I wonder just how, I wonder if that actually is a new argument. If when you were first arguing for the, what became the Voting Rights Act in 1965, people were saying this is an old problem. Or if now this is actually a new argument, a new part of the fight that people are saying, oh, this is one, it doesn't need to be protected anymore. Well, I, I wish the Senator and the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court would understand without the Voting Rights Act of, of 1965 and being renewed during the past few years, we wouldn't be where we are today. We wouldn't have the progress today. The, before the ink was dried on the decision, you had states, and you said it so correctly, like Alabama, North Carolina, Mississippi. Mississippi. They want to take us back to another period. And the American people are saying, we're not going back, we're going forward. <laughs> People call you the conscience of the Congress, which I'm guessing probably embarrasses you. Yes. Um, but people, people call you that on both sides of the aisle and have for a long time. If you could wave a magic wand and have Congress pass something solely at your request, what would it be? Uh, first of all, uh, if I had the power to do it, I would... Uh, bring members of Congress together and have someone like Jim Lawson, this unbelievable teacher, to conduct a nonviolent workshop. And, and maybe teach them the way of peace, the way of love, to, to get them to respect the dignity of all of the citizens, all of the people in this country. If, if, if we could Get, just get members of Congress to come to that point 
So we're going to provide health care, education, jobs. We're going to save this little planet, going to save the environment for generation yet unborn. And, and, and not to be so, sometimes I think people just mean. Really. I, I, really, I don't, uh, maybe, I, I don't want to say anything bad about my colleague, but, you know, for someone to stand up and, and, and say to the President of the United States, you lie. I never, a member of Congress, uh, uh, for someone to say, that we're not going to be part of an effort to pass comprehensive immigration reform. We have to come to the point to say we're going to stop spending so much of our limited resources on bombs and missiles and guns and put people back to work. <laughs> that we're going to create jobs. That we're going to take care of our little children and see that they all get to very best possible education. But I, I, I think uh, the book, March 1 and 2 and 3, will provide a, a way out to give people, especially those that are so young, those not so young, and those yet to be born, an avenue, a way to stand up and get politicians to say yes when they may have a desire to say no. The book debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It is uh, selling like in a way that I'm not sure anybody expected. I don't know if people expected it, but it's been phenomenal. It's one of a trilogy. There will be March book one, March book two, and March book three. Why comic book form? Well, it was the Martin Luther King Junior, the Montgomery story that influenced me and my involvement. I had this wonderful co-author, the staffer who came to me a few years ago and said, uh, Congressman, you should write a comic book. Uh, he had told me that he was going to Comic-Con and he was discussing with some other campaign staffers and they started laughing at him. So you're going to a comic book conference? And I said, you shouldn't, you shouldn't laugh. You shouldn't make fun of him going to Comic-Con. I said, well, it was a comic book that inspired me, inspired other people. And he that came, was 1958, the Martin Luther King comic, the Montgomery right, story. Right, and yeah. it was 14 pages, sold for 10 cents. And I read it, and I read it. It became, it became the guide for many students in, in Nashville, in North Carolina, in other places around our country and around the world. And he kept coming back saying, you should do it, you should do it. And I said, yes, if you do it with me. So the rest is history. <laughs> and I went to Comic-Con. <laughs> How did Comic-Con feel about you? <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, that, that, I, did they treat you the way you get treated at the grocery store? Oh, oh, Was it all hands on John no, Lewis? No, they treated me very well. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, several people came up from different parts of the country, so we have a real hero here. Oh, that's great. They was very, very nice to me. I'm going back. That's great. 
just wanted to ask you about something that you did um, in the 90s at a time when you, you really stood alone and against your own party uh, in an important way. You gave an impassioned and, to me, unexpected speech on the House floor in 1996 um, against the Defense of Marriage Act um, that Clinton, the, the, the Bill Clinton uh, world likes to maintain, like, to, like maintains the history of the Clinton administration as if it was great for gay rights, uh, but it did give us both Don't Ask, Don't Tell and the Defense of Marriage Act. And you gave an impassioned speech against it. You said it encouraged, this bill encourages hatred of our fellow Americans for political advantage. It was an uncompromising, fiery speech at a time when President Clinton was about to sign that, sign that law. Did, did you ever personally have feelings of prejudice about gay people, chauvinism about sexual orientation that you had to put aside? Oh, um, I've always tried to treat every human being with the highest respect and, and love. But I will never forget when we were playing in the March on Washington in the summer of 1963. One of the brilliant, unbelievable human beings was a man by the name of Byron Rustin. And it, it makes me sad even today when I think of the way he was treated by the black leadership. They were afraid that maybe some southern senator would stand up and say something on the Senate floor that the March leadership included by resting, some of us call him Bad or Bide. He was very close to A. Phil Randolph. And I remember some of the leaders saying, he cannot be the chair of the March on Washington because he was gay. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., James Farmer, and myself, Caucus, and we came to the conclusion after argument, discussion, debate, and said we would select A. Philip Randolph, and we knew that Mr. Randolph, this unbelievable man, would pick Byard as his deputy. And it was Byard Rustin who literally put together the march on Washington. And I'm so happy and so pleased that in a few weeks, President Barack Obama is going to award him the Medal of Freedom. Mm. But, when, but I tell you, when people would ask me about gay marriage, um, I've always said, I try to paraphrase something Dr. King would say. Mm -hmm. I heard him say it so many occasions. When people would ask him about interracial marriage, he would say, races don't fall in love and get married. Individuals fall in love and get married. So I came to the conclusion, if two guys want to fall in love and get married, it's their business. If two women want to fall in love and get married, it's their business. It's better to love. It is better to love. And no government, state or federal, should tell people who they can fall in love with and get married. I've always accepted that. I only have, have one other question for you, sir. You are, are you 73 now? 73, 73. but I feel much younger. <laughs> <laughs> you were um, 15 and growing up in Alabama when the Montgomery bus boycott happened. You live not far from Montgomery. 
you were 18, 17 when you met Rosa Parks. You were 18 when you wrote to Dr. King and met Dr. King. You were 20 years old when you were first arrested at that Woolworth's lunch counter in Nashville. You were 23 when you gave the keynote address at the March on Washington. You were 25 when you were beaten on that bridge in Selma. You're 73 now. From all of those days, with all of those people that you worked with, all of those people you learned from and were inspired by and organized with, the leaders who rose, as, the, as you rose as a very young man, of all of them, you are the survivor. Is that lonely? Uh, I, I think about people that I was involved with, people that I marched with, worked with, organized with, um, and very few of those individuals are left. So I cannot pick up the telephone and call Martin Luther King Jr. say, how you doing, Dr. King? Uh, what is it like? Uh, you know, he was very young. He was very young, assassinated at the age of 39. So speak to Whitney Young, who was born here in Kentucky. Unbelievable man, uh, A. Philip Randolph and others. Uh, that's why I cried so much at the, at the inauguration of the president in 09. I kept thinking about President Kennedy that I met in 1963 at 23. I got to know his brother Robert Kennedy very well, and his other brother Teddy Kennedy. I, you miss these individuals. You miss these individuals. And sometimes sitting on the house floor, I said to myself, I wonder what would Dr. King be saying? What would he do? When I spoke out against the war uh, in Iraq, I kept saying, we need a speech of Dr. King that he spoke on April 4th, 1967 at the Riverside Church. Uh, but I'm inspired when I know how they live and what they taught me. Congressman John Lewis, it's such an honor. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.